Father God, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. And we ask today that you would speak to us, that you would show us Jesus, and that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we might love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I was 25 uh, when Amy and I moved to California. I know we bore you with stories about California and our time there so often, but the reason is that it was so formative. And one of the ways that it was uh, formative became apparent to us quite soon after arriving. Now, uh, I'd come back to faith just before us going, sort of in a year or two before us going. And I became uh, a self-confessed, in fact, self-approved expert on everything to do with the church. And I used to sit in the seats or the pews, whatever it was, and uh, we would, you know, and sort of think through what was happening, how people were leading, how people were preaching, leading worship, and then I would go elsewhere afterward with a friend or whoever would listen to me and pick it apart, line by line, piece by piece. That was what I did. I taught, and let me tell you, I talked a good game. I don't think there's anybody who's talked a better game than I did back in those years. I would pour forth what I thought to be wisdom from God's own mouth, except... When we arrived in California, uh, a strange thing happened. I actually had to start putting my money uh, where my mouth was. I had to start, rather than sitting and observing other people doing stuff, uh, being a critic, I had to act, I had to do stuff, I had to lead people. And the problem was is that Amy, uh, we we kept being in environments where people uh, would leave the church or uh, on the staff, they just had to move on for whatever else, for whatever reason, and, uh, and their job would become available. And we didn't, at this point, have lots to do. So Amy would just put a hand up and say, we'll do it. And I was uh, really, really fearful. So I kept getting landed with Amy with all this extra responsibility. And it weighed on me because really what I liked was talking a good game. And I didn't much like doing anything. And in that season, I became overwhelmed, uh, paralyzed with fear. And I experienced very deep anxiety. And it was particularly centered around leadership and preaching. Within three weeks of that time of arriving, I had my first opportunity to preach. I didn't ask for it. I would never have asked for it. And this is a church of about, at this point, about 8,000 people. And the gatherings were about 1,000 people each. And it was quite, uh, it felt like quite a difficult place to cut your teeth. Let me say that. But I talked such a good game. And... uh, and, and, and I, what I began to preach a bit more regularly. And what was difficult for me was that I would usually find out I was preaching maybe a, a week or sometimes two weeks in advance. And that meant that that whole period leading up to the sermon was just a mess for me. Overwhelming fear. Uh, you know, bordering on sort of having panic attacks and just not able to think, fixated on, not able to think about anything else. It was in the midst of that time that we met somebody called Reverend Kathy, who is this incredible person. She's just amazing. Full of the Holy Spirit. Uh, uh, ordained Anglican uh, minister out in California. Just larger than life, bubbly, but sensitive. I mean, one of the most extraordinary people I've ever had the privilege of meeting. And I don't know how it happened, but Amy and I ended up in her study. And I poured my heart out to her. And she became, for us, for both of us, but particularly, I'll speak from my perspective, for me, Uh, 
an incredible minister of Jesus, incredible minister of healing in my life. We would sit together every, every, every Friday morning uh, and she, her office is just by Newport Beach. The sun was always shining like this in my memory. <laughs> and she would let us talk and she would pray. And her office became a sacred place, a holy place of the presence of God and of prayer. Her office became a place of healing for me, a place of restoration. It was the most incredible time. It was the hardest time in so many ways. But Reverend Kathy shaped my understanding of God and prayer forever. She changed my thinking entirely, not by telling me her theology, but by being with me and by enabling me to, to go somewhere where I just hadn't been with my fear. And that place was the presence of God. We've been in a series called Basics, imaginatively titled, like everything else here. Um, and we've been looking at the, some of the foundations, some of the basics of the faith, of what it means to follow Jesus. And we've been trying to apply that more recently to sort of the practical stuff, the experiential stuff of the Christian faith. So last week, Joanne spoke brilliantly, beautifully on worship. It's just outstanding. If you weren't here, you need to listen to that message that she brought. And this week, I want to talk about prayer. And here's the thing. When we talk about prayer, or when I've talked about prayer before, and when I've heard others talk about prayer, that the temptation is to go straight into the nitty-gritty, the specifics, and to reel off maybe my five favorite different modes of prayer. I might want to talk about intercession, about standing in the gap between heaven and earth and calling down God's heavenly promises and into reality. I might want to talk about adoration, the moments where I'm undone before God and in silence or in words just adoring him. I might want to talk about the prayer of tears, Richard Foster calls it, where I'm just broken hearted and, and my prayer is simply the overflow of tears before God. Or I might want to talk about supplication, asking him for stuff, bringing before him my needs or any of the other things. I might want to talk about confession. And often what we do is to pick our favorite one or the one that we most need, maybe, and we bring that before people. But I think in doing that, we can miss something essential and central about prayer. We miss the heart of it, the why, if you like, or the what even. What is prayer? See, what I learned from Reverend Kathy back in those times in her sweltering heart, Newport Beach, uh, Reverend's office, was that before prayer becomes a technique, before it becomes a mode of discussion with God, it is in fact first an encounter. Prayer, in other words, is about coming close to God. It's about meeting God, tuning into God, encountering God or drawing near to God. Whatever language you want, prayer, thank you, Craig, first and foremost, it's about meeting with God. Or my definition, working definition, by the way, and let me just, I mean, this is, you know, I just want to say, I'm not the expert at this, clearly. There are many of you who've been praying for longer than I've been alive, and you know far more about this than I do, but here I am sharing what I think I know. <laughs> Prayer is about consciously entering into the presence of God. That's what I think prayer is about. 
Prayer is about consciously entering into the presence of God. So therefore, prayer is what we do when we meet with God. Prayer is what we do when we, we step out of whatever activity in business and sometimes worry or fear that we're experiencing and we step into a different place of encounter with God. Consequently, prayer can look like a million different things. And you know, prayer may look religious. There may be times when our prayers look religious. We're in a churchy environment and we're doing churchy things. But sometimes we can be in religious environments and yet not really be engaging in prayer. Similarly, the reverse can be true. We could be in a, 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 a non-religious space. You know, dare I say, you could even be at a football game. And particularly if you're watching Manchester City, you just move to such awe at some of the formations and the plans and the patterns that Pep is doing. I'll go away from that. You can be in a, in a non, so, so to speak, religious space. But because your heart is drawn into God's presence, you're engaged with him in prayer. You see this a lot, don't you? Many of you have done walking or hill walking. You get to the top of the mountain. Yeah, climbing a mountain is miserable, isn't it? Miserable, nobody likes that, surely. You do, John. Nobody, nobody should like that, but it's worth it. Because when you get to the top, you get the view, and you're moved sometimes to awe and wonder. That is a moment, that moment of gratitude, of being drawn beyond yourself, into the presence of God is a moment of prayer. <laughs> and what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 is that we're to pray continually. We're to pray without ceasing. And I remember the first time I read that, I felt dejected. I felt like if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna fulfill that, I've gotta, I've gotta move to a monastery. And Paul can't have had monasticism in mind for everyone. Can he? He himself had a job on the side. Now, what Paul's describing is not a, a pattern of work so much as a pattern of life. He's saying that prayer needs to be drawn into the fabric of every part of our lives that, so that every moment, the, the, the intention is that we would arrive at a point where every moment, maybe even every breath, would become uh, directed to God. That in everything we're being drawn back into his presence. Both consciously, yes, and unconsciously being drawn into the presence of God. And living in that way, prayer. Now prayer is always a response to God's invitation to us. And so Augustine put it this way. True, whole prayer is nothing but love. I love that. Captures this idea that at the heart of true prayer is love. It's actually about relationship. It's not a dry and dusty process that we've just got to do more because it says it in the book. It is a love affair with a God who loved us so much that he was reckless with his possessions and he gave us what mattered most to him. Prayer is our response to that invitation to come close to God. Now, those of you who are armchair critics, pewback critics as I was, are thinking, well, we're always in the presence of God, Johnny. 
And of course you're right. What does the psalmist say? Where can I flee from your spirit? Where can I run from your presence? The answer's nowhere. There's no place, there's no way that we could escape the presence of God. Psalm 24 verse one. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Or my favorite version says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. There is no way of escaping the presence of God. And yet, we do experience, don't we, moments where we're distracted, where we're drawn away from the presence of God. We're not consciously aware of God's presence. But our minds and our hearts, even our bodies, we're aware of them being filled with something else. And usually, if you're anything like me, what they're filled with is yourself. Your concerns about your own life, how it's going to pan out. I will make a confession. Yesterday, I was distracted from the presence of God because I, was, I, was, I wasn't in yesterday. Yesterday, I was not living in yesterday. Yesterday, I was living in today. My mind was here this morning. I was thinking, what am I going to say? I've been working on this, but I've got nothing to say. This is going to be too simple. This is going to be too complicated. This is going to be rubbish. You know, no one's going to get anything. It's just drawn into all these thoughts, really, which had to do with me, my own ego, my own stuff. I wasn't living in the presence of God. It wasn't a prayerful day, particularly for me. When we're surrounded or filled with ourselves, we experience that as anxiety. We experience that sometimes as fear. Sometimes we might feel a, a, a nagging sense that all is not right. Rather than knowing the joy that's found with him, we feel deflated. Rather than knowing the peace that comes from being close to God, we feel tense. I get irritable when I'm like that. I make a public confession, a public apology to my wife and children for that. Perhaps I shouldn't joke. <laughs> but we're drawn into God's presence in prayer and we need to learn to live there. So why pray? Well, I've said it really, but the first reason we pray is because prayer allows us to be with God. That's the point. You know, do you know that whatever you're Whatever you think your vocation is, whatever your vocation is, you have a vocation, a job, a calling, a plan for your life before all the other stuff. And that plan is to be with God. Westminster Shorter Catechism says, the chief end of man and woman, the chief end of humans is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the point. The point is to enjoy God. And when we pray, when we pray as Augustine says, true, whole prayer, nothing but love, when we pray in that way, we get God. The reward for prayer is God. What a wonderful thing. But it doesn't end there. There is more to say about prayer. Prayer gets us God, more of God, or rather God gets more of us, which is after all what he wants more than anything else. But prayer also transforms us. Prayer changes us. Richard Foster, who wrote a stunning book on prayer, and I would encourage any of you to buy it, it's called simply 
prayer. Thank you, Richard. The Ron Seal book of prayer. Exactly what it says in the tin. Richard Foster says this, to pray is to change. Another of the reasons that we need to pray and learn to pray is that we need to change. I don't want to be an irritable father. I hate being like that. I don't want to waste Saturday with my children and, and Amy by being distracted. It's horrible. It's rubbish. It's obviously not what God has for me. I don't want to waste my life feeling anxious. I only have one life until God renews my life and spend eternity with him. I get that. I have this opportunity here and now, this moment here and now, and I'll never have this moment again. I want to be transformed. An amazing story of a, a desert father called Abba Joseph who had another father come to him, Abba Lot. And Abba Lot went to see Abba Joseph and said, Abba, as much as I'm able, I practice a small rule, a small rule of life, a little fasting, some prayer and meditation. I remain quiet and as much as possible, I keep my thoughts clean. <laughs> like that one. What else should I do? You know, what else should I do? Then the old man stood up, stretched out his hands toward heaven, and his fingers became like ten torches of flame. And he said, why not be turned into fire? Why not be turned into fire? The goal of the Christian life is fire. Stir up a passion in our hearts, God. Don't you want to be on fire? I, I don't want the parts of me that are apathetic to remain apathetic. I don't want to be cold towards God. I want to be a flame for God. I want to be the kind of person that burns for God. Not just in front of you guys on a Sunday morning. When it pays for me to be passionate. When I'm on my own. When it's just me and him. When I'm in front of my wife, just me and her, or the children. I want to point everyone I meet to him. When I'm in my car and somebody cuts me up. When I get caught going 46 in a 40. It may or may not be a true story. Seriously, what are we here for? I don't want to be lost in maintenance Christianity. I don't want to waste my life one foot forward, two steps back. I'm human like you are. I'm broken. I'm a sinner. But I want to move towards the unforgettable, as you two said, fire of Jesus. I want more of him. I want the transformation he had. And that's why, by the way, we read about Moses. You were thinking, what on earth was that reading for? I think Moses is such an example of this. He's a model of this. And of course, we could have had Jesus as the model of this. But Moses, for me, oh, he's so human. He was born into confusion. Who is he? An identity crisis right out the womb. An Israelite or sent in a basket across the river and, of course, immediately an Egyptian. Growing up, growing up in the palace, but nursed by his own mother, an Israelite. Who's, who is he and who's? Is he? 
And his identity crisis manifests itself in one of his earliest public, public acts, the murder of an Egyptian in defense of an Israelite. He's rejected by the Israelites and the Egyptians. He runs into the wilderness and spends 40 years with no one but God, figuring out who he is. And in Exodus 3, he faces God in the form of a burning bush, a bush that is on fire and is yet not burning up. And Moses comes face to face with God and God tells him two things. Firstly, he says, Moses, this is my name. Secondly, Moses, this is your name. You are to deliver the people and send them to the promised land. Moses is given a mission. He's given a vision for his life. Now that mission is not actually the promised land. That vision and that mission is to be with God. And Moses goes through the rest of his life living a God-filled life. Bringing the people before God. Bringing God before the people. And it comes to this picture at the end of his life. And he's standing on the brink of everything he's worked for. And he climbs the mountain. By the way, 120 years old, climbing mountains. Let's see if he's still doing that, John. At 120. Moses was. And he overlooks at the top of the mountain, the promised land. After which he has been chasing his whole life. Leading this obstinate people there. He's finally there. That are ready to go in. And God says, Moses, come and see. But you're not going in. And Moses has been so shaped by God. That he doesn't complain. And we would know, by the way, if he'd complained. His complaints are written all over the Old Testament. He doesn't complain. He lies down quietly with God and breathes his last. Why? Well, I read this this week. This is what somebody called Ruth Haley Barton says. This is what I've come to see most clearly in the life of Moses. For Moses, the presence of God was the promised land. Next to that, everything else paled in significance. Moses, for Moses, the presence of God was the promised land. Why prayer? With prayer we get God. Prayer brings us the transformation we need. Prayer is the transformation we need. Why don't we change the fire? Thirdly, prayer changes the world around us. Wesley, John Wesley said, God does nothing except in response to believing prayer. E.M. Bounds, we can do nothing without prayer. Prayer changes not just us, but prayer changes the world around us. This maybe is where we struggle. Because if prayer changes the world, why is the world as it is? We have to learn to live in the tension of that. I had an amazing story, an amazing story a few years ago, and it's written actually up in this book, which I'd really commend to you. It's called Dirty Glory, which is a great title. Uh, it's by Pete Gregg, and it's really worth reading, particularly in connection with prayer, and reading somebody's, and a journey, the journey of 24-7 movements, answers to prayer. And I'm just going to read this from the book. You may have read it, but if, if, even if you have, you'll be encouraged. Listen to this. In the U.S. state of Arizona, you can hear it for the U.S., Okay, they've got a couple of... Thank you. Thank you, Doodle. In the U.S. state of Arizona, 
An accountant called Deb Welch made a momentous decision to leave her well-paid job and coordinate a year of 24-7 prayer throughout the Grand Canyon State. Just 34 days into this initiative, the Super Bowl was due to touch down at Arizona's University of Phoenix Stadium. One of the newly mobilized intercessors received a terrible premonition about the event. In a dream, she saw the stadium filled with blood. Taking the nightmare seriously, Deb dispatched a small team of prayer warriors to the stadium to pray preemptively against disaster. On the day of the game, Deb joined almost 100 million viewers watching the biggest sporting occasion in America, not the world. But her nerves, I'm not bitter, uh, had little to do with the fate of either the New York Giants or the New England Patriots. The contest passed uneventfully. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers performed at halftime. What a nice detail. The Giants surprised everyone by defeating the Patriots. And Deb breathed a sigh of relief. In fact, she felt a little foolish for having needlessly dispatched that well-meaning team of intercessors to pray at the stadium. But then came the news. Media outlets began reporting that behind the scenes at the Super Bowl, a bloody massacre had been averted. A disturbed 35-year-old named Kurt William Havelock, furious at having been denied permission for a Halloween-themed horror bar in nearby Temp. Tempe, Arizona, Tempe, thank you very much, Joel, had mailed a series of rambling threats to media outlets the day before the game. The LA Times, New York Times, Phoenix New Times, and the Associated Press had all received chilling misses from Havelock, pledging, and I quote, swift and bloody revenge, and even vowing to slay your children. Havelock drove himself to the University of Phoenix Stadium, armed with an AR-15 semi-automatic assault rifle, 200 rounds of ammunition. He'd retained one final note on his person, do not resuscitate. Havelock had no way of knowing that he was parking his car that day in the exact location where a random group of Christians had gathered to pray against bloodshed. Armed to the teeth and intending to kill as many as possible, the would-be mass murderer unexpectedly experienced something that he would later describe in court as a change of heart. He broke down in tears and phoned his father he was sobbing hysterically, his dad recalled. He said, I've done something terribly, terribly wrong. Havelock ultimately handed himself into police without a shot being fired. Prayer changes the world. How do we pray? Let's bring this into land. How do we pray? Sum up the whole of prayer in the close of a sermon as if that's possible. I just want to say three very, three very simple things. I think we need to make prayer central in our lives. Make prayer central. Richard Foster in that wonderful book I referred to says this, real prayer comes not from gritting our teeth, but from falling in love. Yeah, when somebody's falling in love, maybe you've seen that in a friend, maybe that's happened to you. That thing, that relationship takes over. It becomes the, the center of everything. There, you know, you try and talk to that person about something else. You know, something practical like, what are you going to eat today? What are you going to do with your day? Useless. All they want to talk about is this person. They bore you to tears talking about this person. That's what falling in love is like. It becomes central not just central in some abstract sense, central to their actual day. 
If we expect, if we want to grow in prayer, and yet we're not willing to let put boots on the ground, so to speak, not willing to actually shape our, our actual hours around prayer, we're going to miss the best of what God has. We need to make prayer central. For some of us, it's early rising. I rise before, I attempt to rise before my children. The trouble is we've ended up in an arms race. And the earlier I rise, the earlier they rise. And I tapped out at 5 a.m. I was like, this ain't working. This is not happening. I'm going to wait till you're older. Some of us, we want to rise early. Some of us will just carve out a couple of minutes here and there. Whatever we do, we've got to find a central place. Here's the thing. Put prayer in first. Don't put your your schedule in, your emails and everything else. Don't put that in first. Put prayer in first and fit the other stuff around it. I guarantee you, I make this my money back pledge to you. You will become more efficient at work if you pray more. I I guarantee it. I'm sure there's research done on it. He says in a sweeping comment, I'll find it. You'll become more efficient. If you rest and take time out with God, you will work better. Make prayer central. Secondly, make prayer simple. Don Chapman said, pray as you can, not as you can't. Now, can I just say, I have a hunger a passion to be somebody who prays contemplatively well. Contemplative prayer, if you've not tried it, involves less sort of like talking or journaling and doing. It's more being with God. I have tried. I've got some friends who are Catholic priests. They are experts at this. There's one guy who's younger than me who spends the first 45 minutes of his day doing contemplative prayer. I had a spiritual director who was working and helping me move in that direction. Guys, I've got to make a confession. At this point, it didn't work for me to do 45 minutes. I'm starting out now with five to 10. That's where I'm beginning because I can't do 45, but I can do five. That's just a small example of praise you can, not as you can't. So many of us, we look at our spiritual heroes. Wesley, you know, used to wake up four hours before he needed to. So he could just get a, a cheeky four hours in before the day. Just a cheeky little four hours. What? <laughs> That's compelling. I, try, I, I, I started trying to do that. It didn't work for me. I burned out. For me, that didn't work. But I did come across a book a number of years ago when I was 17 called Too Busy Not to Pray by Bill Hybels. And he said, journal. And since I was 17, which is now over half of my life, 17 years, I've been journaling. And through thick and thin, through faith and doubt, I've been writing prayers. And I've got, I've got dozens now of journals filled with prayers, with tears, with celebration, with confusion, with loss, with joy. That has worked for me. That's what I can do. Make prayer simple. Thirdly and finally, make prayer sustainable. There are times when prayer is easy. Oh, folks, ride the wave. And there are times when it's hard. And if you don't have a sustainable way of praying, when it's hard, you'll give up. You need something simple, something central and something sustainable. Don't break the bank on day one. Yes, there are times for going deeper, for 
moving forward for prayer and fasting. Maybe a week. Friends of mine have prayed and fasted for 40 days. I've not lasted 40 days yet. But maybe there, there are times for that, but we need a rhythm. If you're going to fast, can I encourage you to do a day a week? Or if you're starting out, do a meal a week and build up. Praise you can, not as you can't. Make it sustainable. We have here at church, and I want to bring this before you as I close, a rhythm of prayer. In the morning, we pray a psalm. You might have a journal open. Just have the Bible open. Put, light a candle, that's what I do. I go into my room, I make a coffee, I sit down on my favorite chair, have my Bible open, my journal open, I light a candle, smells nice, I've got my coffee. I invite the presence of God and I read a psalm. And I ask God, Lord, is there a word that sticks out that I need to pray through today? And I allow prayer to come from that. I journal stuff if it's relevant. I pray the stuff. I actually like to read a bit more than just the Psalms. I read a bit of the Old Testament, a bit of the New Testament. I follow what's called the lectionary in the Church of England. I can talk to you all about that if you'd like, if you'd like help with that. Maybe do Bible in a year, something like that. I read the other stuff and I just bring my day before God. And then at midday, uh, I pray the Lord's Prayer. And I know a number of you are, are doing that as well. If you're not, please join us in that. Wherever you are, it's awesome and really awkward. Your alarm goes off. And you just pray the Lord's Prayer. We've had students at the end of lectures huddling down, praying the Lord's Prayer. We've had consultant anesthetists praying the Lord's Prayer in the middle of operations. We've had, would you believe it, pastors praying the Lord's Prayer. You too, wherever you are, a builder, a secretary, a mom, a dad, whatever it is, you do. Pray the Lord's Prayer at midday. And then finally, before, in the evening at some stage, for some it's before bed. It hasn't worked so well for me. Uh, but just in the evening, we pray a, f- a final prayer and we look back over the day. It's called the prayer of examine. But we do it by coming into God's presence and asking him, is there anything you want to highlight to me? Anything we need to talk about today, Lord? We replay the day. We rejoice in the day. We repent and we resolve to live differently. What would it look like if Nottingham was filled with people who knew the way into God's presence? People who consciously came into God's presence every day, set times of the day so that they could live every unconscious moment in God's presence. What difference might that make to your life? What difference might that make to your workplace? What difference might it make to your friendship, to your family, to your marriage if you're married? What difference might that make to our city? Why don't we stand? We're going to pray.